Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We hosted a big speech at the RFG on Monday morning. Well advertised, lots of media filing into the building because we were doing it in real life. And yet, when Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner stood up to set out her vision for restoring trust in public life, news began to break that Labour leader Keir Starmer had just started his shadow cabinet reshuffle. Was it a deliberate attempt to undermine his deputy? Not caring about the impact of that? We'll ask that, look at her proposals, and run the rule over Labour's new team. However much it tried to shape the news agenda this week, the Labour Party could not compete against Omicron. The new strain of coronavirus has landed, and this week the government responded with some new rules, but a promise that Christmas would not, for the second year running, be cancelled. We're going to weigh up its response and ask what might happen next. Joining me in the studio is a top IFG duo, senior fellow Catherine Haddon and Alex Thomas, our programme director for all things civil service. Hi both. Hi Bronwyn. Hi Bronwyn. Great to have you here. And I'm absolutely delighted that we're joined as well by Eleni Correa, the political reporter at The Times, who first broke the story of the Labour reshuffle. And hats off to you, pretty much called all the job moves. Hi, Eleni, what a week. Hi, Bronwyn, thank you. Thanks for joining us from the Commons right now. All right, well, let's start with Angela Rayner and her speech on standards in public life. The speech was written, the top lines briefed out, the Today programme covered, kept in place, and everything was ready at the IFG on Monday morning for her to wade into the row about second jobs and standards in public life. A report by Eleni here, though, had appeared in the Times about an imminent Labour reshuffle, but 11 o'clock, Rayner took to the stage and she wasn't holding back. The current regime is no longer working precisely because we have a Prime Minister who is shameless in breaking the rules and won't enforce the consequences on others who break them. Corruption, and that is the word, is happening in plain sight and is rife, right through this Conservative government. But by 11.30, Twitter was buzzing with reports that Labour leader Keir Starmer had already started his reshuffle. And when Rayner sat down to take questions, that was what the assembled media wanted to know about. The reshuffle. How could I forget? Um, Look, I, I, I don't know the details of any reshuffle. I've been concentrating on the job that I'm doing at hand, and I think that's really important. Eleni, did the reshuffle happen more quickly than was planned? I think so, yes. I think that the reshuffle did happen earlier than was planned. You know, we, we won't know for sure, but what we were hearing this week is actually Keir Sommer was planning to hold that reshuffle later this week, or at least, you know, potentially Thursday is what one MP told me that they had heard. Um, but when that story appeared in the Times um, that I wrote overnight on Sunday, the Labour leader realised that actually he couldn't really delay it because he had a shadow cabinet meeting on Tuesday with his old shadow cabinet and he couldn't in good faith have that meeting um, and reassure uh, some of its members that they their jobs were safe uh, following that story. So he decided to bring uh, forward the reshuffle to Monday um, uh, sort of in light of, of that story breaking. So... Congratulations on that. But do you reckon then that the timing was not not intended to steal Rain of Thunder at all? It was just a case of uh, these this sense of urgency trumping what she was about to do? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, it's somewhere in between, really, because certainly Angela Rayner and her team are convinced that there's no, at least they were earlier this week, at least, um, but they were convinced that there was no other explanation. It had to be that Keir Starmer intentionally wanted to overshadow her speech. And why else would he hold the reshuffle on that day? It, in reality, I mean, 
as I said, the leader's office are denying that that's the case. And as I've heard, it, it sounds like they brought forward the reshuffle earlier, but they're very unapologetic about the fact that they did disrupt that speech. You know, um, they, when, when they started the reshuffle on the morning as Angela Rayner was speaking, they were very well aware of how that would be interpreted and what the consequences of that would be for his relationship with her. But they went ahead and did it anyway. And I think that timing actually as well, the fact that they started making calls um, while Angela Rayner was still on her feet at the Institute for Government making her speech, it wasn't considerate of the fact that she she had that major address. So while I don't think it was intentional that they that they would hold the reshuffle on the same day to disrupt it, there was clearly no real apology there and real concern about the fact that they would disrupt the speech when they eventually did decide to bring the reshuffle forward. I think that captures the flavour, Red, inconsiderate at best. Kath, do Labour leaders need to consult their deputies when a reshuffle is underway? Well, no. And, you know, certainly in the past, I don't think Corbyn consulted Tom Watson. I'm sure Blair didn't. You know, well, Blair might have consulted John Prescott. Um, I don't know. But no, I mean, the Labour, Labour are in a very different position because both posts are elected. So whereas actually for a lot of Conservative prime ministers, they don't have a deputy, but whoever might be their, their top lieutenant or whatever might expect to be consulted if they had a good relationship with you know, the particular individuals in question, but there's no, it's not quite the same as the, the way in Labour, which Labour... Labour does give quite a formal role to this deputy and it's something that... It yeah, I mean, it's a party of... role. So yeah. there's there's no automatic sort of expectation that that would equate to sort of deputy prime minister. Obviously, at the last reshuffle, Angela Rayner got all of these titles and a lot of the speculation was that that was partly because, again, he had sort of mishandled her in the run-up to that particular reshuffle. Um, so there's there's a lot of uh, there's a difference there between effectively the tension between the party relationship of leader and, and deputy leader and then the shadow cabinet relationship of prime minister in waiting and the you know the ultimate authority that a prime minister has to make appointments means that none of this shadow cabinet can assume that they would get the same posts in government and Angela Rayner the same is true so there's a tension between the party relationship and the sort of you know, shadowing government side of things. Put it very well. And, and she obviously has a big following on the left of the party. And any um, disrespect, if I can use that word to her, you know, it might be taken badly by them. Um, you mentioned all her titles. I got through four or five of them in introducing her. She said <laughs> laughing. She said, no, no, there are more. Eleni, on the actual personnel changes in that reshuffle, what do you make of what Starmer did? Well, you know, I, actually a lot of the same faces that were bef- there before the reshuffle are still there. So in some ways, what some people have commented is that it's largely that people are in better roles that fit them sort of more closely than they were before. There's there's obviously some very significant new appointments. I think Yvette Cooper is definitely the centrepiece of that reshuffle. You know, her, her return is the sort of the biggest development and the biggest story that comes out of that. And that's a very significant new person to have around the, the shadow cabinet who she has a very high public profile. Um, and she, she, you know, it's, it's an acknowledgement that on the issues of home affairs, which are absolutely among the most important for the Labour Party, if they want to do damage to the government, they weren't cutting through. Her taking on that role is, is sort of Keir Starmer's acknowledgement of that. There's also a clear, I mean, again, some people have commented on this. There's a clear 
a promotion of sort of the people on the labor right, the kind of Blairite figures to, to more prominent roles. You know, the question is whether it's because Kirsama is shifting in that direction or because he thinks that those particular individuals, I'm thinking of West Streeting, who's now Shadow Health Secretary, Bridget Phillipson, who's Shadow Education Secretary, and Pat McFadden, who's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. It, you know, it, it might be that Keir Starmer thinks that those people are particularly good media performers rather than um, that uh, kind of shift towards the politics that they support. So that's another kind of key direction that that reshuffle has uh, taken. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting seeing, seeing those appointments being made. I'll come back to a couple of those points in a moment. But Alex, this return of Yvette Cooper, what does it tell us about the balance of influence between chairing a select committee, which he's been doing with very high profile, as Eleni was uh, describing, and being in the shadow cabinet? It is interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? And exactly as you, you and Eleni just, just said, she's gained that high profile from the position of being a select committee chair. When she was in the shadow cabinet under Ed Miliband, she arguably had a had a lower profile. So I think there are risks to this. She, you would expect her, you know, she's a very experienced former minister, uh, shadow minister, you would expect her to get to grips with the portfolio and to make an impact. I think the risk for her and for the Labour Party, I, I suppose, is that as a shadow minister, you have to take a policy position. It's in one sense, critiquing ministers, questioning them in a select committee, it is uh, easier or it's easier to uh, make an impact than when you're being scrutinised yourself for your own policy positions and uh, and how you're, you're setting out what the alternative would be. So, I mean, they are very different roles. And obviously, select committee chairs have been increasingly prominent uh, since they were elected and as the role has uh, evolved uh, and they've sort of got used to uh, how to make, make an impact. I think it was probably good for Keir Starmer and good for the weight of the shadow cabinet. Whether it ends up being good for Yvette Cooper, we'll, we'll wait and see. That is a really good point. Eleni, the press still refer to you know Blairites and Brownites and saying that they're back. Is is that appropriate? Uh, yes, it was the last time that that Labour had prime ministers in power, but um, had prime ministers, but uh, it's a long time ago. Yes, that's a good point. Um, but you know, two things. First, it's these are terms that everybody understands, um, readers and uh, sort of the general public will immediately associate certain uh, ideas and certain political opinions with those terms. And I think it, it's a very kind of clear way of explaining where people sit on the political spectrum in the Labour Party. But also a lot of these individuals do still, you know, are big fans of, say, Tony Blair and think that Keir Starmer should be more like him, for example. You know, that, that, that a lot of people um, that we've been referring to were perhaps around during the Blair and Brown years. I mean, Yvette Cooper is an obvious example. She was she was a minister, so you know it's it's definitely accurate to to use those terms to refer to them because they do they do still have um, close links. They did have close links, and they still do have close links with those former Labour prime ministers. Kath, I wonder if you can take us back to the actual content of Rayner's speech, which I don't mm. want to be overlooked or upstaged by by all the the party stuff. And she made some really meaty proposals after mm. three weeks in which everyone has been talking about standards in public life. What did you make of what she said? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's it's almost that actually, partly because of the way in which everything played out and the reshuffle took over, it allows us a bit of space and time to go away and, and think about these. So I don't think, you know, the ideas themselves have been completely overshadowed. And they're, they're worth considering. I mean, 
But what they've proposed, which is so radically different, is taking in particular the independent advisor on ministerial interests. This is Sir Christopher Guite. This is the person who, in theory, is independent. Lord, Lord Guite. Lord Guite. Sorry, Lord Guite. Um, in theory, is independent, but actually can only initiate inquiries when the Prime Minister gives him permission. And Prime Minister still has quite a lot of control over what gets published and what he then decides to do about a minister who has been deemed to breach the rules. So there's questions about the independence there. And then also the ACOBA or ACOBA, depending on what you want to call it, which is the business appointments um, process that addresses former ministers and civil servants and says, you know, whether it's appropriate or not for them to get a job that might conflict with the the job that they had had in government. So it tries to stop lobbying effectively by former ministers. We've argued needs to be much more beefed up, much more put on the stat- on the statute books and much more strongly enforced. So it takes those two parts and says, let's have an independent ethics um, and standards. I can't remember, actually, was it standards and ethics or integrity and ethics? Integrity and ethics, I think it was. Integrity and ethics. commission that would be independent of government, that would be able to investigate these and that would have a statutory backing and, you know, wouldn't be dependent upon the government of the day. There's still a lot of question marks about that, who sits on it, how it gets appointed, what happens when they make rulings. It's a long very central constitutional convention that it is the prime minister who advises the queen on who can and can't be in his cabinet and therefore you know would sack somebody if they had been deemed to breach breach the rules but it's it's not unheard of canada has you know a slightly similar system in terms of much more independence for this kind of um standards work so so there are some merits to thinking about actually do we need to take this further afield from from ministers in the same way we've been talking about with MPs so it would be good that 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 idea isn't completely overshadowed and we do discuss its merits we need to discuss it though and one of the points that's bothered me about it is this idea of a single independent standards body which I spent some time Mm. asking Angela Rayner about and quite a few questions coming in online challenged her on because as Jonathan Evans who's head of the um Committee on Standards and Publish, I've uh, said when he was speaking to us, there's a problem with having just a single independent body. Who is the pure white person who is going to, you know, to have no ethics, um, blemishes on their whole career, who's going to yeah. um, sit at the top of this thing? And will that person have the backing of, of everyone? It's very hard to see how a single body can have a sense of legitimacy. I mean, you know, that person. Yeah. I mean, I think it it does make sense in terms of the ACOBA rules and the independent advisor on the ministerial code, because both of those are about, I mean, you'd need to take out the civil servants perhaps, but both of those are about ministers, both in office and out of office and what they can and can't do. So you can see that bundling those two together would work. I think the bigger question mark for me is that they also wanted to incorporate the Committee on Standards in Public Life, which is the committee that Lord Evans uh, chairs. And that, you know, that is a very different body because that isn't about individual inquiries into specific breaches and cases that is looking at our whole system of standards it it cuts across many different aspects of public life public services mps all these kinds of things and it would be a shame if that somehow was diluted uh, because it got incorporated with something which is inevitably going to be dragged into sort of political dispute if it's dealing with ministers 
Well, in case any listeners are in any doubt, we back what uh, Jonathan Evans and his his team have said about standards in public life, um, with a few uh, suggestions for tightening it up even further. Um, but that is going to run and run, as he says. People are not rushing to implement all these things, although the public attention does help. Let's turn to the second thing that dominated the week, and that was the emergence of a new strain of coronavirus. We now all know its name, Omicron, it's been called, and it's coming, obviously, just as Christmas is approaching. We've all been told to put our masks back on and get vaccinated or boosted as quickly as possible. But the government's response has been criticised already for being either too tough or not tough enough, depending on which wing of view you come from. Alex, you wrote a great report for us last year called Decision Making in a Crisis. And the crisis isn't over, as this is showing. What do you make of the government's decisions at the moment? Mixed, I suppose, as as, as ever. But the first point to make is the, the, the one that you were implying there, which is that it's not easy. I mean, if you're being criticised from both sides, maybe uh, arguably you're, you're, you're getting it just about right. So it, it's not an easy situation for government ministers and their advisers to be in. There is so much uncertainty. And it is worth saying, I mean, at the start of this discussion, that we just don't know. We're, we're all crossing fingers and touching wood. Omicron won't be... Bad. As severe as some of the other uh, variants uh, or some, some, some of the concerns that are expressed. Um, but we just don't know at the moment. All the decisions that the government is taking are in, in, in that context. I think one thing, taking a step back a bit, one thing you can critique the government on is its winter plan or autumn winter plan that was published a couple of months ago. That described the situation that the government was in at the, at the time with trying to get vaccinations out and, uh, and so on, but was actually pretty thin on what it would do if the COVID situation got worse. So I think what we're partly seeing now is the government suffering from not having a really clear framework for decision making, externally published at least, that describes how they would act and the sorts of uh, measures that they would use to inform decisions like this. So uh, that's um, that's one point. And then on the specifics, I think they're clearly right to give a big boost to vaccination, both in terms of encouraging more people to do it, contract for and buy more vaccines, we've just heard in the last uh, day or so huge new contracts going out on that uh, and to move rapidly to reduce the uh, the time periods b- before people can get their boosters that all seems like sort of sensible sensible insurance on the very specific decisions about travel and um, restricting travel from parts of southern africa you can criticize it on both sides i think the uh, it, it seemed pretty sensible to me to quickly restrict travel from those areas in order to buy yourself a bit of time to work out what this new variant might mean and to put in place some of the other measures that that I talked about. But the failure there seemed to me to be not to test these people when they came back. Most other countries across the world were testing the flights before the flights were banned, were testing the passengers as they came off. The health secretary uh, last weekend couldn't say with any confidence that that was happening. So I think there, there is still some um, some flakiness around the, uh, the testing and the tracing system there. Kath, what do you reckon on these promises about delivery, uh, the new word that the government is very fond of, uh, even making it through into popular vocabulary? The government's promising a lot on boosters, a lot on new vaccines. What do you make of what, it, what it's promising? Well, I mean, it's raising expectations again, although it's not quite in the same level, the boosterism that we, we saw 
earlier in the pandemic. But maybe, maybe a word we'll avoid in this. <laughs> okay, so good point. Yes. But, uh, you know, it still is, there is this kind of both the urgency because people are hearing about this, this new variant and are, are getting worried. And then, you know, also the government are keen to try and get more people to be able to get their third jabs. The problem is then obviously the NHS have got to, to go and deliver that. And I think that's what they're all trying to work out at the moment. Those over 40 can, you know, start booking JC, uh, the Joint uh, Committee on Vaccines and Immunisation has now said that you can reduce the amount of time between your second and your third dose. So that allows for a lot more people to get that booster dose uh, earlier. But they've got to work out the capacity of doing that because that is millions of people all trying to book on the system at the same time. And they've also got to figure out how to deliver it because we don't have at the moment the same sort of, you know, buses all over the place uh, delivering it. When I went on looking, you know, to see what was available, it was all um, sort of pharmacies and with, you know, a few big centres where you can go to. So they've got to think about will GPs be involved and in which case, how does that affect their capacity to do other jobs? And I think these are the discussions that are going on at the moment that they hope to have solved in the next few days, week, to be able to give you know the public a clear message on, on when they can get vaccinated. Eleni, I want to ask about the politics here, because the Conservative Party is not exactly united behind the Prime Minister, is it? No, although, I mean, to be honest, actually, the Conservative Party is pretty united in not wanting to impose any real domestic restrictions. So in that sense, um, you know, there, there is an actual consensus um, between the Prime Minister, between people, ministers and government in general, and the, the sort of backbench Tory MPs who, as you say, over the past year or two have been um, very vocal, uh, vocally coming out against restrictions that the government has put into place. But really, you know, we're in a situation where the government is really not, nobody in government is, is pushing for any kind of restrictions on uh, gatherings or hospitality or anything like that. Um, I mean, as we've discussed, it's a boosters program is at the center of, of their response. And also they've, they've already put in some restrictions to do with international travel and suggested today that there might be more of those coming for example pre-departure COVID tests when people board flights to the UK and that's um that's the really the real extent of 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 what they're looking at and what they're willing to do at this stage and in that sense um you know there is agreement on that point and what do you reckon about what Labour should do because they're in a difficult position, as they have been. Uh, you know, it's very difficult for them to call for Christmas to be cancelled. Absolutely. Um, uh, what they've called for so far is pre-departure testing for international travel, but they've they've not gone so far as to call for any real domestic restrictions. And it's, as you say, it's a really difficult position. I mean, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting point about what the sort of political problem that Keir Starmer has faced over the past two years. He's facing a lot of calls from the left of his party, um, telling him to be more oppositional, to criticise the government more. But actually, if you look at public opinion, people think he's been too critical, that he's playing politics with the pandemic. And that's something that's cut through and that Tories think has cut through on the doorstep that you know members of the public think that Keir Starmer has been playing politics with the pandemic um, and is sort of talking the government down when actually they've just been doing the best that they can so it's a really difficult political problem for the Labour Party and it's difficult to to balance that sort of the country and the public opinion with calls from within the party for Starmer to do more and and, and just hold the government to account more mm. um, and you know I think ultimately um, he, he will probably continue being quite cautious in his approach and quite broadly supportive of government restrictions when they're announced. 
It is, though, I would say, I mean, the government seemed to have have given um, certainly the media and and perhaps the opposition party a way into this story, which is obviously the the one circulating about a Christmas party or was it really a Christmas Mm. party, but a Christmas gathering last year and whether or not, um, you know, the government, the number 10 themselves had broken the rules. So they do seem to be struggling to respond to that story. So that is, does, do you think that has traction? I can't tell at the moment. It could do, yeah. I'm also, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of waiting to see. It's an interesting one. I think the challenge is that it was a, a year ago now, so that's what you know. If it's not quite fresh in people's minds, you know, the last lockdown, hmm. it's, it's that's. I think the the tricky thing about this, but there could be. I mean, it just depends. It, it kind of re- depends on government slipping up a bit on this. At the moment, they're stone, stonewalling questions about it, not not denying that the party took place, but insisting that, you know, the regulations were followed at all times. It's, you know, it just sort of depends on whether the media managed to unearth more mm. about it. But definitely, there is definitely potential there um, for that story to do damage. And Labour's uh, clearly keen on um, pushing pushing the government on that. Keir Summer brought it up at Prime Minister's questions yesterday. So I think I think there's potential, but the other the other factor is the fact that the booster campaign is being ramped up again. We mm. saw last time the massive vaccination program that really helped the government's ratings and, and polling. And at the end of the day, how much of this cuts through? If that if that really ramps up, you can mm. kind of see public support for the government increasing as well. And, and this story potentially uh, getting a little bit lost if if not, nothing new. It sounds like your sense is that people aren't weary of this, that they're going to get their boosters. We've seen these very high numbers. And it's possible that the government gets the same kind of response in the polls that it did uh, from the first vaccination. Yeah, exactly. Just briefly, Brian, I was I, I was going to say on the number 10 party, if it did happen, I I can't believe it happened. I mean, what, on earth, what on earth was going on in number 10 at that time <laughs> that they thought that something like this uh, uh, was was an appropriate thing to do? It's not often I sort of feel a sort of visceral, what what on earth is going on in government? Who was running the thing? But on, on, on this, if it did happen, it's pretty extraordinary to me whether, whether it cuts through or not. Yeah. I'll ask you a different point, Alex, uh, um, which is about what many people have called confusion in the government's messages in the last couple of days. So we've had um, Jenny Harris, who's the head of the UK Health Security Agency, saying uh, that people ought to be very careful and not socialise unless necessary or don't particularly need to, uh, kind of confusing message, including perhaps over Christmas. On the other hand, um, others, including Health Minister Gillian Keegan, have said, no, Christmas is on track. And many, many people have said, what do they mean? At the heart of this, I think there is a coherent message, which is that go about your business. Don't modify your behaviour in a dramatic way. We're not going to go into another lockdown, but do take sensible decisions to limit your you know, intimate contact, if I can put it that way, with uh, what Therese Coffey was saying about uh, people uh, under the mistletoe. Do take a, uh, you know, some sensible uh, decisions about, about limiting your potential exposure, which is what we'd all do with, you know, common colds and, uh, and, and anything like that. But I think it's got that sort of common sense type message has got a bit lost because different actors have been saying different things. The fact that Jenny Harris said one thing and then the ministers were saying another suggests there's some sort of conflict between ministers and officials and their advice. And so the thing has got convoluted and the frustration there is that it doesn't necessarily uh, need to. I mean, having vented my spleen uh, there on the number 10 stuff, I do I do still have some sympathy for government ministers and senior officials on this. They're they're all out doing media, being asked different questions. The press are desperate to uh, find 
find uh, differences of nuance and difference of, of emphasis so they can then uh, uh, then then write them up as, as as conflict it's tricky but they they could have had a more disciplined sort of common sense message i think Kath, what about the science in this? You've written for us about the use of science advice, in, a, in mm. a, including in this crisis. And the BBC has reported that SAGE, the group of scientists advising the government, said that pre-departure tests for travellers to UK would be valuable and that PCR tests only on day two will find significantly fewer cases than tests on day five. Or mm. yeah. What extent is the government being guided by the science? Well, I mean, as Alex said earlier, on, on the basics of when you have a variant of concern, you you notice it early and you take action. They have done that. And they did that both in terms of restricting flights from the particular areas in which the variant of concern was obvious, uh, ramping up to, uh, test and trace in terms of people testing for that variant, and obviously the approach on, on boosters and, and masks uh, that we've been we've been talking about. This issue about the sage minutes that have uh, you know l- been leaked out is all about what they're doing around the rest of the world, and and this is actually starting to cause a bit of a problem. the The difficulty is that their current approach is that you take uh, a test on arriving in the UK on I think it's day two, which can actually be or it's within days you know zero and two. So that means that it doesn't capture people who might have caught it on the plane which is obviously a high risk area in terms of mixing with people that you don't know and this is also causing problems with the devolved governments because they're arguing that they want to see testing on days five to eight and they want to see isolation of people coming to the UK because it won't capture people who are potentially being infected on the planes and that therefore you know there's a huge a potential risk factor here in in people coming into the country. Obviously, the government's argument is that that would have a massively detrimental effect on the transport industry, on on the travel industry. So it's yet another of these balance arguments that we've seen played out. But the government are under pressure. We we might see them, again, do a U-turn on this and and adjust their their view on on pre-departure and post-arrival testing. Okay, well, we'll have to watch that. And Alex, just finally, last week we were talking about a speech by Kate Bingham, the venture capitalist who led the vaccine task force with such success. And she was criticising how the government machine worked, saying it was better when it was in crisis mode. You've written our response. Do read it on our website. You're not convinced. I'm convinced in, in part by what she says. I mean, she she and the actual speech is worth a read as well because it's a much more nuanced message than some of the uh, sort of bash the civil service uh, headlines that we had last week. She's right about uh, some of the benefits of uh, how government works in crises. You know, obstacles fall away, resources are made available, people kind of just crack on with the job. But where I think what what I think's got a bit lost uh, in some of this debate is just how different the context is when you move out of crisis and into what what Bingham I think rightly calls peacetime. Context changes. Money isn't you know government can't operate with unlimited uh, resources uh, clearly in in normal times. And actually, if it did, you'd have huge waste. Uh, you'd have all sorts of other things going wrong that would, in its own way, undermine and cause problems for what government was trying to to achieve. So what what I'm suggesting really is that the three things you need to do to bottle the good things from the crisis but also move on to more effective government in peacetime are to have a really clear sense of mission and direction and uh, actually as as we also talked about last week the the government's outside covid missing that a little bit maybe leveling up will provide it but we'll see the second thing is to recognize and acknowledge that the that the context has changed and coalition building and uh, value for money and uh, uh, some of the other sort of quote-unquote normal uh, attributes of of being successful in, in in government 
management come into play. And then the third is to, to be really clear about who's accountable for what. And one of the good things I think about the vaccine task force was there was a really pretty clear accountability structure there. And, and, and that's uh, uh, harder to do in um, normal times. So, you know, more from us to, to come up on that. But uh, but it was it was an interesting speech. If it had all gone wrong with the vaccine task force, um, it, we would be talking about it all in a very different light. And yes, and lots of things did go wrong. Test and trace, schools, uh, timing of early lockdown. So crises don't automatically produce good good decisions. That's the, the other thing. To on, say. The, on the vaccines, I mean, you know, they were fortunate, obviously, with a lot of judgment that all these vaccines broadly worked, which, I mean, a year and a half ago was not obviously going to be the case. Absolutely. Um, but obviously, they were staffed with scientific experts uh, familiar with vaccines um, and drew on that kind of advice. Eleni, just, just finally wrapping this up, do you think that Kate Bingham's criticisms had much effect in in parliament and the kind of um, political community i guess the uh thing about them is that they are shared by lots of members of the government so that and you know it's it kind of goes back to this uh agenda of of civil service and whitehall reform and that you know dominic cummings made famous but that does still exist and that you know in the conservative party there's a general agreement with kate bingham's criticism so i think that's definitely one to watch uh as we go forward you know after this this new kind of booster program is concluded um we we might be hearing more about what the government is planning to do in this area well thank you for that and with that that's it for another episode of inside briefing my huge thanks to alex thomas kath adam and eleni Correa. really great to speak to you after quite a week and thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen to this week's events, that Angela Rayner's speech, a fascinating discussion on what people want from their MPs, chaired by Kath, and a deep dive into government use of data in a crisis, chaired by Alex. You two have been busy. Hmm. Listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And do leave us a review too. Go on, bring us some festive cheer. Check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our work. We've got four terrific events next week, including a discussion on what the UK's 20 years in Afghanistan actually achieved with Hasina Safi, the former Afghan Minister for Women, Tobias Elwood and Jack Straw, and my interview with John Pullinger, the Chair of the Electoral Commission. Who knows what news will start breaking once our events are underway. Seem to keep happening at the moment. See you next week.